So you're taking a, a renewable energy source 93 million miles away from the planet and you're plugging it straight into an electric vehicle. How cool is that? Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to a special edition of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guest today is Roger Atkins, one of the most influential voices in the EV world. It's a pleasure to have somebody of Roger's caliber on the podcast. This episode is really focused on electric mobility and energy storage, more so than lithium specifically. But I think anybody that listens to the podcast understands well that the future of lithium is directly tied to these two categories. Roger is a great storyteller, and there are a lot of stories in this 90-minute podcast. For those of you who like shorter episodes, just view this as a two- or three-parter that you digest in multiple servings. You'll find something a little unusual in this episode in that I don't think I introduce Roger until about nine minutes in because normally I have a bit of conversation with guests before we start recording just to set the stage and warm people up. Some people aren't used to being on podcasts. In Roger's case, we got right into it. Roger didn't need to be warmed up. Uh, I think you'll note that early on. So without further ado, Roger Atkins. I mean, I've been involved with the battery since it started. You know, the EV thing has always been, none of the lithium companies believed in EVs for the first 10 years. To go to Sony, when Sony and Nissan were teamed up, this goes back into 95, 96. Wow. Nishisan would talk and, you know, they were, okay, we're going to have this in five years or we're going to have this in 10 years. And, you know, it's, it's the 20 year overnight success thing we're kind of living in yet again. For me on this podcast, to have somebody like you who are totally in communication with what's happening all the time, the one question for lithium is how fast does EV penetration happen? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. That's it. But yeah, and, and, and we, we can obviously talk through that. I mean, I, I've seen the framework you, you sent, which is great. Um, and therefore, yeah, I can, I can be very explicit and, um, people I'm opinionated born out of listening to what people have said. I'm not a great fan of just, what do I call it? Numerical alliteration where someone says 20% penetration by 2020 or 30% penetration by 2030. They just pick numbers that it doesn't nicely. mean anything. It means nothing. You can only state these kind of numbers in terms of your belief, whether you call that a forecast or an ambition or, or whatever, if you relate it to some facts. If you talk about, you know, if you say 30% by 2030 because, and then you have a whole string of stuff that relates to data and technology and legislation, you can then say that. That's fine. But if you just bloody come out with numbers and declarations, it's just hogwash. It's boring. And it, it, it's, 
people who have made a living out of doing it. I can't think of the guy's name, uh, Tony Siba. Tony Siba, yeah. And Rethink X. I watched a YouTube video, and this guy said, well, there'll be like 100% EV penetration, and he put a date on it within 10 years. Yeah. And he says, it's, it's, it has to happen. And I was like, that's a nice thought, but there's a lot of practical realities that uh, obviate yeah, I mean, the possibility of that happening. You, you talk to lots of people, Joe. You know how it goes. A lot of people like to use analogies. And the analogy that classically gets used with electric vehicles is the mobile phone adoption, um, which is okay up to a point. But it's not particularly clever and it doesn't predicate itself on the fact that the mobile industry, the phone industry as was, so let's take it as Nokia to begin with, and then what it became and the exponential growth of that and the challenge, the chicken and egg with phone masts and the development of 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, that stuff is all well and good to talk about as an analogy with EVs. But what it doesn't take into account is that with EVs, with in the uh, automotive industry, you have a mature, 100-year-old global industry that is massively powerful and influential and critical in terms of uh, quite a lot of countries' GDP, uh, companies, you know, countries' economics. So, so to simply sort of say, you know. Like I know Tony does, you know, that when he says, here's New York City, look, there's only one horse, you know, and it goes yeah. all that through that stuff. You know, it sounds great. It's compelling. And, he, he, you know, he, I, I like a lot of what Tony says, but, but I just think it's far too simplistic and a bit dangerous to just trot out a few analogies that sound, you know, sound logical, but it's not going to work that way. Well, what I said after I watched him, the first time, and that was, I don't know, two or three years ago. It's, I loved it. It was great. Wasn't going to happen. I, I put in this note, I was at, in Osaka at, at Panasonic the day after they signed the, the first 30 million to Tesla in 2010. And I was like, are you guys kidding me? But already I was supplying Sumitomo Metal Mining, who was making the cathode. And the growth even then, Tesla was doing almost no cars. It had a huge impact on lithium. Yeah. I, mean, I got a take-or-pay contract for 60% of our capacity in 2011, totally predicated on Tesla. And they didn't need... I said, guys, I can do the math. Assume the lithium intensity is 0.8. They're yeah. making a 60-kilowatt-hour battery now. They do 100,000 cars. You don't need all this lithium. What are you doing? Yeah. Well, this is going to grow and... 10 years later, it looks like, yeah, I can honestly say I'm a Tesla believer now, but that is very recent. I don't know how you feel about that. but Well, yeah, I'm kind of a bit with you as well, but let, let me tell you something. I'm reading a very good book. Well, I've read it actually, this book called Green Swans. I watched your uh, interview, interview today yeah. with that guy. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah, he yeah. were at his house and... Yeah, yeah, it was re really cool. So one of the things that jumped out of me in that was a quote from an Ernest Hemingway book. I think it was Hemingway, where he's talking to this guy who's gone bankrupt, who's, who's gone broke. And, you know, before that, he was very successful. And so he says to him, you know, how did it happen? So the guy says two things, gradually, then suddenly. <laughs> and it just struck me. The reason why John put that quote in the book is that's often how change happens. For a very long time, it's been, yeah, there's going to be an EV revolution. There isn't one. There's going to be an EV revolution. 
another three years. There wasn't one. There's going to be an EV. And after a while, it gets a bit like that story of, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Eventually, someone says, there's going to be an EV revolution. People say, yeah, 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 we've heard it all before. It's not going to happen. And then it does. So it's the gradually then suddenly thing. And, and many things go like that because they have to iterate. They have to make mistakes. And if there's one thing you see in Tesla's kind of gestation is the ability to take huge risk and survive big mistakes. This is not a trait that you see in other OEMs, certainly when you would talk about automotive. They're always, they're just incremental development. So the leap to EV, the kind of switch completely out of engines into motors and from fuel tanks, petrol tanks into uh, batteries is, is not incremental. This is a big leap. And I think Tesla now have that, they have that momentum which once you've got it, it's pretty much unstoppable. I think people like Daimler rue the day they ever lent them $600 million or whatever it was to stop them going bust. And why did they lend them that? Well, because they wanted to glean as much information as possible. It was a cheap kind of consultancy ticket. But what didn't they do? They squandered it. They squandered the ability to get an inside track into what was going on. And there's an obvious reason for that, Joe. Why would they want the EV revolution to accelerate? They're very happy and have been for decades, they being the longest one, 132 yeah. years in existence. Why do they want the EV revolution to happen? There's no, there's no need for them to do that. But the need for Tesla for the EV revolution to happen is fundamental because it's survival. If it didn't happen or didn't start to happen as it is now, they would not survive. And therefore, when you start to unpick the kind of knitting, unpick the story, unravel it all, you can see why Tesla are now prevailing and these other ones now are absolutely, definitely struggling. Yeah, I, well, let, let me let my dog out of my office because she's banging on the door. Roger Atkins, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to join me. Joe, it's a pleasure and an honor, and I genuinely mean that. We met for the first time in LA last year, and I remember you sitting up on a stool with, I think, a couple of other guys in a very big, a very rapt audience of uh, specialist guys in and around mining and investment, and they were hanging on your every word. So I listened carefully too, made some notes, and then you and I had a little video chat afterwards, and the thing that's that stood out for me in that, uh, in that session that you gave everybody was a metric where you suggested that something like, and forgive me if I get this wrong, um, by 2025, if the average battery pack size was around 60 kilowatts, the most we could make out of production of say 90 million vehicles would be about 7%. And the reason why you said that, as I understand it, if I remembered correctly, was that this was where the current automotive grade lithium stock and mining capability stood at that moment in time. And, and if we didn't accelerate that, if we didn't help people develop more, invest more in those mining uh, facilities, etc., that would be where we were. We would be in a little bit of a challenging place. We couldn't make any more than that kind of percentage of our overall volume that's where we started and that's where i took great interest in what you were talking about so um yeah it's a pleasure to be back with you and and, and genuinely as an honor i know you're hugely respected um in this specialist field well thank you and uh i am in a micro niche and you're in a much <laughs> bigger pond so uh 
I, I did some research uh, last couple days and, you know, the 5 million views on LinkedIn and some of the other things that, that you are doing on social media certainly dwarf my small position in the world, but I'm glad we're able to uh, hook up for this uh, conversation. I think it'll be interesting. And yeah, you're, you framed it really well that the world says there's plenty of lithium and that, that always comes up and there is, there's plenty of lithium in the ground. The problem is it doesn't do anybody any good if it's in the ground and you can't just mine it in Western Australia and say, okay, we've got these new mines. You have to go all the way to the quality that you need at the moment you need it in the form that you need it. And COVID and this presumption that because, as Elon says, lithium's the salt on the sound, it kind of put us in a position where if we are at that moment where we're going to get the hockey stick in demand, the lithium industry is not prepared for that. And let's just, we, we can get into it, but before we do, let's get your backstory. We met at uh, a benchmark mineral intelligence event. Simon was kind enough to introduce us. And I've watched and I've seen, you know, you've been active on in helping Simon out with some events. So it's been, you know, I've, I don't think I've gone more than a couple of months without seeing your smiling face. And <laughs> now that you've had a haircut, you don't have to wear the hat. Yeah. So let's, let's learn a little bit more about you and then get into a discussion. Okay. Um, just on the LinkedIn thing for a moment, that's the only platform I use. I, I don't really muck about with Twitter or Facebook or, or the other things. So I kind of specialize on that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I've been doing it for like 15, 16 years. Number two, it's only me. So I don't have time to do all the other stuff. But what I would definitely say, and this isn't being self-deprecating, it's about, you know, you have to get the quality and quantity quotient right. You know, that, that mix right. So just because you have kind of a bit of traffic or a number of followers doesn't by definition mean that, you know, you have influence or, or whatever. It's about the quality of, of what you share. And I'm very lucky, Joe, that over time I've managed to get connected and have discussions with and, and sometimes, you know, friendships with people all over this EV space uh, that allows me to hopefully my audience to judge, you know, share a lot of quality material. And, and that's, that's nicely built up the audience. But my backstory is pretty simple, really. I've been in and around automotive for just over 30 years. Half of that has been with EV. So my first experience with batteries and chemistry was Back in 2007, I knew nothing about chemistry, really. Um, I flunked it at school. I knew nothing about EVs. This was all new to me. I'd been 15 years in, in automotive, which was all about engines and fuel tanks, you know, petrol and diesel. And then suddenly I'm hearing this thing called LFP. I'm suddenly told there's a chemistry called LIFEPO4. And I learn, you know, which is a capital L and which is a little I and which is a capital F and all of that stuff. And then I got the gist of how this thing works, you know, the anode and the cathode component. Um, found myself a few years after that, uh, when I was then at Ricardo for a few years, over at A123 in Livonia, um, looking at this amazing 21st century battery facility, which just stunned me. It was just extraordinary. And yeah, over, over time, between this long-standing automotive experience and my 15 years in EV, I've just kind of been nosy, to be 
blunt with you, Joe. It's been about being inquisitive, not being frightened to ask dumb questions, um, not be embarrassed to sort of say, I don't know, and listen and learn and, and often go and then find out things that are completely outside of my general experience to try and learn something. You know, I'm inquisitive, I suppose. Inquisitive slash very nosy. Well, it's interesting that your entree was LFP. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah you know, it's LFP kind of was written off on the on the real EV side. It was relegated. To, it was going to be buses and scooters and it was a China thing. I think we're we're going to see that that isn't necessarily the case and what people people make these sweeping assumptions, which is kind of the way this industry seems to run is that people want to make a simplifying assumption that they can just not be inquisitive. That yeah, and, we got and, the easy answer, so we don't need to ask any more questions. Well, well I, I think that's it. You know, it, it's about asking the right questions. And the right questions are often the difficult ones, often where there isn't an immediate answer or that the answer's challenging. I, I think people often take that line of least resistance and, and or, or, you know, probably worse still, follow fashion. Someone starts saying something and then someone else does. And before you know it, a whole load of people are without anyone stopping and saying, just a, just a second, why are we doing this? So I think, you know, a key thing is to ask the question. But as to LFP, let, let me put it like this. <clears throat> so th back in 2007, this was a little company called Modec. They were a tiny British company, only ever made like 450 vehicles, but they had some influence and, and I think they're looked upon quite fondly. And we, funny enough, Joe, didn't begin with LFP. We actually began with a Zebra battery. So a sodium nickel chloride battery was where we started. But what we discovered there, because again, this was all new to, to many of us, was that these things needed to be cooked up to a temperature before they'd even start working. So this wasn't particularly practical for the, the market we were targeting, which was the commercial vehicle fleet, you know, delivery trucks, uh, UPS, FedEx, Tesco, the, these sort of people. But the intriguing thing, coming back to quickly on LFP, is some of these batteries that were made with Thundersky cells were assembled in battery packs by Axion in Scotland and then delivered to us in Coventry. Some of those battery packs are now fully functional and working no problem whatsoever. Where there have been problems, it's mainly been in the BMS and the software, etc. in a good number of Modec vehicles still running around London. So what does that mean? It means that if you run an LFP battery regularly without overstressing it, without fast charging it, uh, by giving it a very disciplined regime uh, that's very predictable, it would appear that that particular chemistry is very well suited to the kind of 50, 100, 150 mile range type thing where, yeah, the discipline and the charging protocol is steady state. So you know, I'm not a chemist. I'm not an engineer. I didn't, I didn't even after that time discover much more than the basics that I know. But what I do know is that that chemistry seems to work very well and very reliably for a particular duty cycle. Yes. And, and that's one of the more interesting things about the whole, <clears throat> the hype around the million mile battery. I did a podcast with Nano One not too long ago. We were saying the million mile battery is as long as there's an LFP battery out there, that can take so many cycles that yes. you already have a million, a million mile batteries already out there. That's, it's the hype around how it's 
pitched that's created all the buzz because technically a, a million mile battery isn't isn't necessarily a new or technology breakthrough the recent cell to pack at CATL or the blade at BYD those can be potentially game changers on how far down the into the middle market that LFP can go and I think Two years ago, if we'd have been talking, the idea of Tesla putting LFP yeah. the Model 3, you'd have thought I was an idiot or I would have thought you were an idiot if either, yeah. either one of us had said it. And now it's essentially becoming a reality. Yeah, but, but again, I think this plays to the strengths of how Tesla's culture works. Of course, it's driven fundamentally by Elon Musk, but he cannot be the only one because once you scale up a business to what they have today it can only run by a whole bunch of people doing the right thing. And fundamentally, I think what he's triggered as a mindset and invited in talent to, to be likewise is to ask the basic questions, is to, is to feel confident to, to challenge things. And I think in a lot of the big companies, automotive companies particularly, challenging the status quo, asking the questions which seemingly are either they can be perceived as stupid that they're not there's no such thing as a stupid question this is where innovation comes this is where people get to think well hang on a second yeah you're right we, we know why haven't we challenged why haven't we looked at that again why why haven't we looked at the fund one of the fundamentals i mean one of the areas particularly i think still seems to be immature is the bms is the battery management system so if you kind of equate a battery as a kind of beating heart as, as a kind of an organic thing and the bms as the brain well we all know that fundamentally anything with the brain it's almost like the brain's in charge if the brain gets it right if the brain can trigger the right sort of behavior the right diet the right exercise or all those things then that will reveal in in the body in the heart a, a much better functionality so i think I just have a sense, I, I don't have profound knowledge, but I have a sense that battery management systems have still got some substantial way to go in managing how an individual cell level, a module and a pack behaves, performs and lasts. But, you know, you don't hear much about BMS sort of development. So, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm just, you know, it's just a fanciful notion, Joe. Well, if, if you don't hear about it, I certainly don't because I'm upstream from that. But what I always felt was brilliant with what Tesla did, there was excess 18650 capacity just there for the taking and the idea that, well, we can design a pack and we can use off the shelf, <laughs> thousands of off the shelf batteries where a, a failure or five or 10 isn't the death knell. Whereas everybody else was looking at the EV as we'll use a few cells, bigger ones. And then if you have one failure, you're basically, you lose so much capacity that you're screwed. Yes. And so that seemed to be genius to me. And I didn't know enough. I'm not an engineer either. The, the electronics design, it just, it just seemed intuitively like Tesla's idea was better and the economics around using excess capacity there and being able to cool it, all that stuff seemed to make perfect sense. Yes, again, but I heard a, an online event recently with uh, people from um, 
uh, Imperial College London, and they're generally speaking pretty smart uh, dudes. Uh, they were suggesting that something like 23% of the cost of the Tesla battery pack was in thermal management and a couple of other metrics which, which surprised me. You know, they, they weren't particularly impressive. But, but what that got me to thinking was, well, hang on a sec. So if this is the Tesla battery pack and there's that much more room for improvement, everyone else is so way behind that stuff. Can someone leapfrog Tesla? Or have they got, you know, such a lead and they'll keep progressing and the work that Jeff Darn allegedly is doing in terms of some novel battery chemistries and, and breakthrough technologies as and what and where and when we see things emerge on the 22nd of September, which is Tesla battery day, investor day, as I'm sure you know, time will tell. But um, yeah, it's, it's still a fascinating arena. It's still an extraordinary place. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm not an engineer, as, I, as I've said a few times. But the thing that I think I do that helps on LinkedIn, Joe, is I spend time with engineers. I spend time listening to chemists. I spend time listening to these people and then try and translate as best I can the kind of complex into something that I can then understand. And then that's how I write. That, that's, that's what I write up. Um, so I, I'm not trying to dumb down anything. I'm just <laughs> I'm just trying to understand it myself fundamentally, and then share it as almost like a piece of jigsaw in this developing thousand-piece jigsaw of, of of the EV proposition. Where do you say if you were going to give a state of the industry speech in terms of you know e-mobility? To me, is many things. It's it's not just what Tesla's doing. It's the last mile vehicles, the, the long haul trucks, all these things. Admittedly, they're at, still at different stages on the path to success, but where do you see us in terms of electrification really turning the corner? Are we already past the point of no return? I mean, if you, if you look at an EV terms, we're, we're still sitting around two, two and change percent penetration, which... Yeah after all these years, doesn't seem like much. Okay, to, to, to answer your question, I, I think you have to break it down into a number of segments and, and markets. So, so let's quickly run through that. Yes, please. So when we talk about electric vehicles, we're talking, of course, about cars, but we're also talking about buses, trucks, vans, bikes, scooters, you know, the whole raft of anything that has a battery on it and then runs as an electric vehicle. So where are we right now? I believe we are now at or even slightly over the tipping point for mass adoption of electric vehicles in the guise of um, commercial vehicle fleets, electric vans, particularly vans, uh, delivery vehicles. So, you know, there's a massive addressable market, for example, I know quite well in Europe for three and a half ton vehicles. So these are, uh, you know, medium sized stroke small uh, delivery vans that, that scoot around cities and towns delivering packages and parcels. Slightly bigger vehicles that then carry a lot of uh, what they look to carry as volume rather than weight. And what we're seeing, the evidence for this is a company like Amazon, who don't kind of just willy-nilly do things, ordering 100,000 electric vans from Rivian. A company like UPS, ordering 20,000 electric vans from Arrival uh, in the UK. And the intriguing thing with both of those purchases is that neither of the makers of those vehicles are established OEMs. And I 
wouldn't be surprised if whether it's the guys in Daimler or the guys in Ford or, or wherever, you know, really were quite shocked by those announcements because you think, well, well why didn't they order, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, French EVs? Because France and the French OEMs have been on this for quite some time. You know, there's the Nissan ENV200. There's been a bunch of other vehicles, Maxus, you know, from originally UK, then China. Um, but But it's because... The fundamental of both Rivian and Arrival has been to focus on what, what the customer wants. And what the customer wants is, number one, cost, and number two, reliability. So to get to cost, given where we are with batteries, they've actually focused on novel technologies around assembly, uh, material design, and they've been forensic in talking to the end user in exactly what they want. And the other thing that's driving it, Joe, is legislation. So legislation now is, is dictating that in many cities, many urban areas, you can only operate a zero emission vehicle. Well, if you're Mr. Amazon and you want to deliver your packages to whoever, wherever, you can't start saying to them, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do that. You'll have to come to a pickup point because we've only got diesel trucks or petrol trucks. You have to, you're kind of obligated to take the EV route because pretty soon, if you're not careful, you'll have no go zones where you actually can't deliver. And if there's one thing we all know about Jeff Bezos and, and a few other people like him is they don't do that. They don't do can't. They have to be ahead of the game. So, and I also think public opinion has massively tipped towards, and, and not just because of COVID. I, I'm not going to hang everything on that. I think it was the momentum for it was massively there before that something you know you could all argue there's a pareto law in a lot of towns and cities 80 percent of the pollution is caused by 20 percent of the vehicles what are those 20 percent taxes buses and vans so that's my kind of initial if you like i'll come on to all the other bits and you know as, as we go through it but commercial vehicle fleets it's happening and and going back to our first comment uh joe that the thing about maybe lfp you know maybe we need to think carefully about what sort of battery chemistry is going to go in those vehicles given the duty cycles they're going to have? Yeah, I think that that's as it stands now, on average, an LFP market. There'll, there'll be exceptions. You hate to say that's an, that is definitively an LFP market because it'll be, okay, well, Proterra doesn't use those or so-and-so doesn't use those and they get into delivery vehicles. I totally agree. I mean, I live in an area where Almost every time I step outside, I see an Amazon vehicle going by. Yeah. And those are, over time, going to all be electric. They, they, they've got to be. And the other thing about Amazon coming into this play is, I don't know how you bleep out things on your uh, podcast, Joe, but I'm going to say it. There's a pissing contest now between Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. There's no doubt of that in my mind. And I think, you know, it's born out of uh, where they are with their explorations into space. I think it's born out of their supreme confidence in their intellect. Nothing wrong with that. We need these sort of people. You know, it's very easy to criticize them and, and say all sorts of things about them. But, you know, th these are people that, that get on with stuff, you know, in, in, in a big way. I think both of them now are kind of not so much locking horns, but both have concurrent ambition and i think if you look at the structure of of what amazon is and how huge and important it is some of the areas it hasn't made a play into yet are energy and transport and if you combine you know evs with batteries and renewable energy and storage well it's almost i would suggest inevitable that amazon are going to come weighing into this 
arena. I think investing in, I could see Amazon investing in mines, going right upstream, Joe, I really could, in, into mines, into technology development and batteries, because if they're going to make a play on transport and energy, then they can't be hostages to fortune on, you know, what is that trajectory, which again is where you see Tesla, their tentacles feeding out into the mining arena, feeding out into uh, academia for, for chemistry development with, with batteries, um, because energy is the fundamental of, you know, human activity on the planet is driven by energy. For a, it's been ancient solar for the longest time. And now we're kind of cut, cutting out a few million years, the middleman, and, and we're going straight to renewables. But we have to predicate that on storage, on, on not just, but batteries in, in a big way. So, yeah, that, that's, that's what I think is happening. Well, I would love to see Amazon get amped up and try to become the vehicle to grid purveyor of choice where you can just click on the website and some guy shows up and and i think that's i think tesla actually needs that competition competition makes both sides better i'm not making a prediction but nothing seems out of the realm of possibility because you and i are both i'm older than you are but you and i are both old enough to remember when jeff bezos was a skinny geeky guy yeah just trying to sell books online and maybe he had bigger ambitions, but for the first decade, it seemed laughable. Yeah, but I think, uh, you know, whether it's him, whether it's, you know, Bill Gates, whether it's a whole bunch, uh, uh, a number, not a bunch, it's only a small number in truth, of these extraordinary people who I now think are turning into, like we had during the Victorian era, I mean, if I can make it a bit British for a minute, people then who, who develop partly because of their great wealth, a bit of a social conscience and a realization that their legacy cannot just be that they were multi-billionaires, that their legacy should be that they did profound things for people, for humanity. And whether you, that's, you know, what Andrew Carnegie developed, whether that's what, you know, I, I, I'm not going to go through a list, partly because I can't remember some other names, um, but there are a good number of people that amassed a fortune based on a given, you know, technology or invention, and then realized that that actually wasn't enough. What, what, what would be enough would be to leave a lasting legacy for humanity that was benign. Um, and I, you can see that clearly in what Bill Gates and Melinda Gates do with the Gates Foundation. I guess once you've got a ton of money, you know, another ton of money is no great shakes. Well, it's uh, interesting it, that you, you bring that up because if recently I've been listening to this series of historical podcasts that are, are talking about some of the, the robber barons and then how they, Carnegie's one of them, and they were perceived much more negatively in their day yeah. than these guys are now, a Musk, a Steve Jobs, or Gates, who are in a sense, I think because of social media in one in some respect, considered as much heroes as they are, you know, people throwing stones at them. Whereas the uh, the original, you know, Carnegie employees didn't do that well, but he, I, I went to a library with his name on it. There were hospitals with every, everything yeah. had his name on it there for a while. And I lived, you know, I came out of a small town in Western New York. Yeah. I, you know, it seems to be a fairly standard journey. You know, you, you start poor, you're a bit of a loser for whatever reason. Uh, you kind of just, you're in the right place at the right time. You make an absolute fortune. 
you enjoy that for a period of time and then you just sit around thinking hang on a second there's got to be more to life than this and then you realize that actually you can give back not just give back money but give back your intellect into something a bit more fundamental and like i say there's nothing more fundamental than energy the production the provision the delivery the use and maybe reuse of energy on the planet on this planet earth we as human beings is the number one thing one way or the other triggers and directs how we make food how we sustain ourselves how we drink uh, how eco whole economies work um, and, and this is partly, I think, why the kind of tectonic plates have been crashing up against each other in this switch from fossil fuel to renewable fuel, because whole empires, current empires, contemporary empires, whether it's the Russian, the United States, the Middle Eastern Empire, call them what you will, well, let's call them empires, though, they're predicated on maintaining that power base given that they have access to and deliver to the rest of the world fossil fuel energy they do not they will not simply just give it up just like that it's like asking a nation state to give up its army to hand in its weapons or whatever it won't do it um so so this shift isn't just what's the best technology how do we save the planet what's the right thing to do it's it's multi faceted it's quite complex and one of the big facets to it is geopolitics it's clear for everyone to see you don't you don't need to be an expert to, to understand that so th this this shift is yeah is is challenging but for sure with evs and commercial vehicle fleets it's happening now joe 100 percent certain of that well i i never doubted china's seriousness i lived in shanghai from 2005 to 2010. Many of those days, I couldn't see from my office building to the Yan'an Expressway. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was just kind of inevitable. But my driver, who was 40 at the time, said, oh, when I was a kid, there really weren't any cars on the roads here. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's how fast, that's how fast, fast it's happened. And I, I remember, being in Chengdu in the early 2000s and going out for a run and just being in a sea of bicycles. And I was in Chengdu recently, not that recently because of COVID, but relatively recently. And yeah. I saw four or five young women, probably in their young 20s, driving Tesla. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. This episode of the Global Lithium Podcast is sponsored by Zolandes a Brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data. Zolandis recently saved a major lithium brine producer up to 50% in their drilling costs and increased brine well production rates by as much as 40%. Find out more at zolandis.com. Yeah, well, well, that possibly leads me on to another little observation. Again, forgive these being fairly simplistic, but um, <laughs> that's just how I am. When we talk about the shift to EVs around the world, it's not a binary thing. We can't just say there's going to be mass adoption of EVs, full stop, or the trajectory is X. Because take China. Let's take China and India. The metric I like to use a lot is the one that says motorization per thousand of the population. So in other words, how many people own a car? 
In India, the latest number I can recall is 22 people out of a thousand own a car. In China, it's rapidly been going up, but it's still only about 140 people out of a thousand own a car. And then when you go out to the West, you know, to the United States or most other countries, certainly in Europe, you're in the seven, eight hundreds, you know, per thousand of the population. So if you begin with that base, there is no way on God's earth that you are going to see a similar trajectory of EV adoption when you've got such a massively different complexion of car ownership as it is today. And therefore, let's take India and China, because if you take those two countries, you've, you've dealt with most of the problem in terms of CO2 in the world. And that's not to say we can't let the rest of the world off the hook, but given the populations of those two countries and that general area, that's like a majority of the world. Um, in both those, China, there isn't the space, there is geographically, but within the urban areas of the mega cities, there isn't the space for 800 people out of a thousand to own a car. You know that, you've lived there, you've seen it. In India, there isn't the infrastructure and there isn't the inclination and there certainly isn't the money, the economic you know, capability to ever get to 800 and something per thousand of a population. So what's going to change there? Well, I think this, they're the two key countries where we see much more a shift to multimodal transport, micro-mobility, and shared mobility. And therefore, the complexion of the shift in those two countries in particular will be profoundly different to the rest of the world. So when we talk about EV adoption, what we should always do, I believe, uh, is to segment it geographically and to some extent economically. And then that way, we can start coming up with numbers that say this percentage by that date or whatever, because it's then got some fabric behind that kind of metric rather than it just sounds nice comforts people to say by 20 30 50 percent of people will be buying evs why there's got to be substance to that sort of trajectory. Well, when i was when i lived in shanghai we only we had one car which for an american to think of a family with one car it's like <laughs> slit your wrists but you know, we did but we had two scooters yeah and it, they were lead acid and I see all those vehicles turning over into a greener, greener form of battery. I mean, Beavis, Beavis talks about this a lot because of his heart for India. You know, you're going to see, yeah, the micro-mobility to me is fascinating. Three-wheeler and two-wheelers and... Yeah, you know. I, listen, I think we've got a lot to learn from India and Africa to, to that extent. I think we've become pretty kind of lazy and binary in many other parts of the world, Europe for sure, North America for sure. We use the excuse that geography, well, you know, we live in big places, there's like a long distance between these sort of things. You know, it's, it's too simplistic. We, we do it because we've been able to do it without understanding the unintended consequences of doing it, both for ourselves and many others. You know, when you, you point out to people just how much owning a car costs you, especially if you put that cost per miles driven or time used, people pretty quickly then start to think, oh, this is just ridiculous. So I've got a really swanky car on the drive and it's mostly on the drive. And every single second that ticks, I'm paying a finance company to have that car on my drive, not doing anything. It's just 
I think eventually it's just the economic argument would prevail. Um, and I think once, you know, the old farts like you and me and even old farts who are in their 50s or even perhaps in their 40s, once we go through a bit of time, the younger people will see that owning cars as we do, we do will just be a thing of the past, especially and primarily in urban areas. Think a lot longer in rural places and other places. Of course, people will still own cars and whatever because of the practicality of it. You know, geography and practicality. You know, I know what I said earlier, but but so, so again, it's not a binary thing. We're not all going to have robot taxes by the year whatever and like no one's allowed to own a car rich people will still own cars we'll still have all sorts of things that's the way the world is the world's always have rich people who get what they like get over it that's like been since the dawn of time <laughs> um, you know i'm not going to get too hung up about that which is why i don't mind seeing things like the pininfarina batista a supercar that's one point something million, or it might even be more than that. I don't find that offensive. I find that intriguing and interesting and beautiful. And I like the fact then that that and people like Marte Rimac trigger and develop technology that then feeds and filters down into many, many other things that are electric. It's an interesting cultural point too. E even as an old fart, I can honestly say <laughs> that once Uber started, I hardly ever rent a car now. Yeah, I yeah. just would rather be able to use my app, get picked up, get dropped off, not have to worry about yeah. parking unless I go to some place where I have to drive 40 or 50 miles into the countryside to go to a yeah, facility. Exactly. I used to be Avis and Hertz's poster boy. And yeah. Now it's the only reason I have status on those car companies is because of my frequent flyer status. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, do you know what? It's funny you should say that about um, about Uber uh, and Lyft and, and a few of the others. My own reason for enjoying uh, an Uber ride is I, I always find you almost always get a really interesting and, and often quite intelligent driver in, in, in an Uber a car. Often they've got another job. Um, they're just people that tend to be good conversationalists. And, and you know, I'm not denigrating taxi drivers the world over for, for their line of conversation, but I don't know. There's just, it's a different type of person that, that is an Uber driver. And from my experiences, almost without exception, they're just, they're more engaging. That's a great point. I haven't been to New York because of COVID in the last few months, but I go to New York fairly regularly on business and I have a daughter that lives there. I now fly into Newark just because it's less of a hassle than LaGuardia. So going into the city, it's always Uber. I have never had an Uber driver yet at Newark Airport that was born in the United States. <laughs> and it's all, I, I don't try to work in the, I talk to them because they always yeah. have a fascinating story. Whether yes. I talked to one guy and he told me his name, I said, you must be Tibetan. And he was just mystified that I would know that that was a Tibetan name. <laughs> Same thing, a guy from Nepal uh, and, I, and a guy from Ukraine. And he said, uh, he goes, I said, well, where are you from? And he goes, where do you think? And I said, well, you think I'm going to say Russia, but I'm going to say Ukraine. Oh, goes, well done. How did you know done. that? Yeah. And, and, I tell you what, my, my default, my default with anyone Antipodean, let's, let's call it like that. I always guess that someone's from New Zealand because I've always found that it's better to say to a Kiwi, um, you know, I think you're a Kiwi, and they say, yeah, I am. 
But if they're Australian, they're not quite so offended. But if you say to someone, oh, you're from Australia, and they go, no, I'm from New Zealand, they're not going to talk to you anymore. It's <laughs> going to be a silent ride. <laughs> we've, we've spent a lot of time and only dissected one, one area of this. Yeah, uh, yeah, we should crack on. Revolution. We're listening for, for facts and some ideas here, Joe. We're letting them down, Joe. I love the fact that you said, hey, you, you, first of all, you've, you've got to look at EVs and parse it by different geographies of the world because it's all different but then yeah. you also have to parse the markets differently too whether yes. it's like you said the commercial vehicles first taxis it makes perfect sense what do you think about the development of some of the some of the things like boats ferries i was in finland early last year and i had my wife take a picture of me i was underneath in a ski area and there was a you know a turbine it was recharging a battery. So I put the thing on Twitter. I put the picture on Twitter and I had more yep. hate from Scandinavians who said, why weren't you driving an electric snowmobile? And <laughs> I said, well, I'm in the middle of nowhere in Finland and I wasn't offered an electric snowmobile, but you have a move, anything that moves, there's a potential for electrification. So we're- yeah. Why do you see some of these niche niche applications? Oh, Joe, I think it's a much bigger thing than a niche. Let's kind of take an order of magnitude. It doesn't get a lot of press, but in reality, one of the biggest culprits for CO2 emissions on our planet is marine transportation, is the shipping of stuff around the world. That's partly because there's a lot of stuff shipped around the world. But it's also, I think, because... It hasn't been given the focus and attention and maybe therefore the kind of innovation and, and development it should have done. And I sometimes feel partly, I guess, because I've been in automotive for 30 years, if I say we, we in automotive have been a little bit unfairly kicked down the road a bit and beaten up a bit because we account for about 20% of the CO2, which is a lot. It's a fifth. You know, you rarely hear about shipping companies or you know freight companies being berated for their lack of imagination or development on reducing their emissions so i think shipping is a huge area and i think there's opportunity there for whether it's batteries or whether it's hydrogen fuel cells to capture a lot of um, kinetic energy which, which is just there and never utilized but in more and more ships it is for sure we're seeing electric ferries come into place and and the good thing here there's a kind of what's that word um a kind of um oh, i can't remember the phrase but but it's where, where things come together you know in, in a sort of um uh, positive fashion a where, confluence as, of factors for a positive yeah yeah that, that that's 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 the one so where you're getting more and more batteries being required and you're getting an ever reducing cost per kilowatt hour and all sorts of other innovations it's opening up these markets that weren't there before whether it's off-road whether it's in mining whether it's in a whole bunch of areas where as you simply put it uh, joe anything that moves can be electrified but only if it makes sense if it makes sense to do it and primarily the makes sense is economic if it means that thing that that device can run more efficiently and effectively first and foremost that's the important thing and the place of government, because I know you, you mentioned to me recently about um, uh, Andy Palmer. Andy Palmer is ex-senior at uh, Nissan, was fundamental to the development of the Nissan LEAF, 
and the ENV 200. He then kind of surprisingly to many came back to the UK and didn't join an EV ambition, uh, but joined then Aston Martin and, and did a bunch of stuff. But, but behind the scenes, Andy is a pretty influential guy in and around the development of batteries. So the ability to develop batteries, to source the minerals effectively, to have good robust supply chain, to get government to invest in incentives for that and some of the vehicles creates the momentum towards getting the price down, which then opens up all these other vehicles that you're you're starting to mention. And yeah, we, we're kind of, forgive me, I do jump around a little bit, so please control me a bit more. Otherwise, No, no, like, it's fine. I think a podcast that's more or less two guys talking about an interesting area is just fine. It doesn't have to be too focused. And Roger, I would never try to rein you in. <laughs> the well, scope of my abilities. <laughs> yeah, well... You can just switch me off if you need to, if it gets that bad. But what I was going to quickly jump into, though, was that it's a kind of big picture thing in a way, but it relates to EVs and where we are and where we're going. So I think over the last number of decades, probably at least four, maybe even five, the East, so I mean Asia primarily, and I don't just mean China, East, if you like, if we can put it like that, has developed more maturely, particularly in government. You have seen more government control, and I don't just mean command and control. I'm not trying to make this political. But what I think we've seen over time is that we've seen a diminution of Western government where they've subcontracted many things. They privatized huge parts of government. They've taken huge talent out of government and put it into private enterprise so that when ambition and when strategy are put together, there isn't enough real intellect inside a lot of Western governments. And I, I, I'm talking about all of them. You know, I'm not talking about the current regime in America. I could as much be talking about the one before that and, and many more, and including my own government as well. Whereas in the East, we've seen much more intellectual grasp of where the world is, where we're going. There's been, I think, more strategic and talented thinking within these countries and governments towards how you incentivize and develop technology and, and make progress. And therefore, I, d I don't think it's just, you can just simply say, oh yeah, some incentives, th that's how it works. It's not as simplistic as that. It's gotta be part of a package. It's gotta be part of a, an holistic approach. You can't just bung money at something and think, well, there's a load of money, it will now work. It's gotta be, yeah, it's gotta be part of a, a structure, a strategy. And I think we've seen much more of that in Asian countries, Eastern countries, than sadly we have in Western countries over many recent decades. I think you're right, I, but I think it, it almost goes back to Confucian culture and how they think about things. And, okay. and even if you go back, go back to China and, and the, the whole, what's a Mandarin and, and the people, you know, there is a meritocracy and people, Good people do go into the, the government and they, they yes. serve for a while and they, they move on and they don't get entrenched where it's um, like we have in the United States with lifetime politicians that are only concerned about uh, the next reelection. I haven't read deeply about that, but having lived over there for 11 years of my life in Japan and China, 
I had it had a deep impact on me just the way, well, let's bring it back to COVID for a second. Mask wearing is just politeness. <laughs> and well, well, in well, Asia, it's not yeah. a throwdown that I, the government's not going to tell me to wear a mask. <laughs> well, let, let, let's, be, let's be frank. You know, picking up your point there, generally speaking, Eastern, you know, Asian countries have dealt with COVID better than Western countries. Again, there's got to be a reason for that. It's because not just command and control from, from uh, the center, but, but just culturally, there is a better connection between... I know I'm straying into dangerous walls of saying this, but, but trust between the government and the people. I know that's a bit of a minefield statement in, in many ways, but democracy is... I'm a Democrat. I, I, I believe in democracy. I don't want to be somewhere where there isn't democracy. But let's be honest, it doesn't always work that well, especially when it becomes marginal, when it's pretty close to 50-50. You end up getting half of a whole nation fed up, to put it bluntly, for at least three, four, five years. And therefore, they're antagonistic and they don't help the government because they almost feel like, you know, like a spoilt child. It's like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to help you. You know, I didn't vote for you. I hate you. And that stuff isn't productive. And, it, and it's, quite, it's quite damaging. And, and, and I think some of these other countries where they don't have that, everyone kind of puts the shoulder to the wheel. And I, I, as I say, I know this is kind of dangerous stuff to talk about because some of that shoulder to the wheel isn't always totally voluntary. <laughs> some of it, you, you're, <laughs> well, you're made to do it. <laughs> then, and then there is that. Well, okay, let's, even though we're not being political, let's just, let's just compare and contrast. Okay, you've got the Asians. I don't like to paint it. I don't like to talk, sound like an American where they say, well, you know, the Asians, because a lot of people in America think the Japanese and the Koreans and the Chinese are all alike. And if you spend any time over there, you are disabused of that. Absolutely not. Yeah. Uh, pretty quickly. But now you have a situation where great hope for the next couple of years is what happens in the EU with the incentives and the regionalization of the supply chain. And, you know, I'm involved with, a, with people that are trying to put a lithium project together in Europe. It's going to be a interesting few years to see how well Europe pulls off this more localized supply chain. I think, I think you're right. And I think going back to my point about leadership, and again, I'm not going to stray into politics, but the one thing about the EU is it's a collection of many countries. What they're at least trying to do is, is show leadership and have some vision. So the Green New Deal, I'm completely with that. And they are putting their money where their mouth is. So in terms of the incentives, so they are trying to have a kind of, um, you know, joined up strategy. And you're seeing people like Northvolt or more recently, the French gigafactory, Fecor, I'm struggling for the name there, Fecor, British Vault, also building a gigafactory. And as I understand it, there's at least two more to come in the UK, possibly within the next 12 months, you know, announcements. And I imagine one or two more uh, as well in, in Europe, at least. And then you have lithium supply in um, Finland. You have lithium supply in Portugal. You know, th th there are a number of things coming together now where, uh, and, and the fundamental, of course, with any gigafactory is where do you get the power? You need a lot of power to develop and build and manufacture batteries. So France seems a pretty good choice because you've got 
nuclear energy, you know, green, clean energy. Similarly, up in the Nordics, you know, with uh, Northvolt in, in Sweden, you've got a lot of access to clean energy. I wouldn't be surprised to see things happening in Iceland, even though that seems, you know, very disconnected from, well, it is disconnected from mainland Europe. Um, uh, but, but, but I think, you know, there are a number of things where, yeah, I, I'm hopeful for Europe, even though I'm in the UK, which, of course, we've just... Um, decided to chop um, that bit off. But uh, let's not go down that line of... um... From the lithium perspective, the project in Finland, it would take 25 or more of those to supply a European supply chain that had a 30% share 2030 in in round numbers. And that's... I like the idea of the regionalization because it does cut out a lot of needless transportation. But interdependency is going to be the rule of the day, whether you call it globalization or not. I mean, if you look at the European build-out, it's still largely an Asian story. I mean, yeah, you got Northvolt, but you got CATL. And, yeah. you know, there's, it's going to be an interesting uh, test case. Yes, it is. Can, can I ask you your thoughts on Africa? Uh, because I've had some interesting conversations with people in Africa of late, a young chap in Nigeria posed a great question at the end of one of uh, uh, Benchmark Mineral Intelligence's sessions. There were lots of good questions. And then this last one came in and I just, I was delighted. I had no idea who it was uh, because it was an anonymous question. And it was given the importance of the continent of Africa on the supply of minerals for batteries, Will we see a, a fairer and a more balanced and a more intelligent approach to building stuff within Africa? So I guess they're talking about gigafactories as well as building other other things so that it isn't just take it and run stuff. Uh, I, I know of one gigafactory which is planned. It's got a fascinating name, which uh, not everyone will take to. But I've actually spoken to the guy who's, who's putting it together, uh, Nishan, a very interesting guy from South Africa, a plan called Mega Millions. Do you just love that name, Joe? Yeah, Mega Millions. It, Mega Millions. It could be in. It could be in Las Vegas. <laughs> well, indeed. Um, but but the story behind that name is a fantastic ambition, which, which is to have much more produced locally, much more utilised locally. It's a huge irony that, that, that Africa is so important to the rest of the world, yet it hasn't had its own sort of internal development in many of the countries. And, you know, so, some of them are pretty good. Tanzania, if you, if you look at how they've developed uh, the country, uh, their country, you know, Kenya to some, extent, to some extent, a few others have had difficult histories, mostly because of how we buggered them up during colonialism, of course. But what, what's your sense of Africa then, given its importance? I think it's going to be a while. Honestly, I get there's a lot of lithium in Africa. And the unfortunate reality is at the present time, it's a lot easier to go to WA and, and get hard rock. I think honestly that from an investor perspective, just on, on what I know, lithium. I'm not talking about, you know, obviously cobalt's a different story and, and yeah. nickel is also a different story. But in the in terms of lithium, I think it'll be I think it'll be a long time and as far as a build out of gigafactories, I have been paid to critique plans for that in Argentina 
And I said, don't, you know, don't pay me to come down there because I'm going to rain on your parade because yeah. right now it doesn't make sense for Argentina to try to make batteries. It makes, if you want to spend a billion dollars, build roads to connect your lithium plants, put, put decent infrastructure in to fully develop where you have, a, where you really have a discernible advantage. You have no advantage in making batteries. And, and it's, right. it's the same thing. It's the same thing with the lithium Valley in um, Western Australia. Mm. I mean, they're, they're great at mining, but they're not going to be great at making batteries and they don't have a market there. So, I mean, there's, mm. there's reasons for it not to happen. Mm. And I believe they're, they're, they're economic reasons. But ultimately, if you go out to when we're on the other side of the ground, yeah, I think the world 30, 40, 50 years from now, there'll be, there'll be battery factories everywhere. But I think it's it's not going to happen in the next 10 years. I guess that's that's my point. Well, as we know, the majority of the gigafactories <clears throat> currently scoped, um, majority of them are in China, of course. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. And in the United States, I mean, well, you, you've got, as I understand it, there's a half a dozen, eight currently kind of planned. I mean, not necessarily announced or financed or definitely kind of finished off but as i understand it from a few conversations that's one of the thoughts i find that quite surprising it's such a small number for such a huge country with 350 million people in it with the majority of them owning at least one car you you kind of think yeah that's that's a curious you know i i guess i would take a little bit of a different perspective on that i think it will happen when it when it needs to happen and I, I don't do a lot of hand-wringing over the fact that, that China's got all this announced capacity. Because, I mean, if you look at, look at Tesla, I mean, they've done okay. And, yeah, maybe the, the cathode's not – the cathode for Tesla in Nevada is made in, in Japan right now. We go, go back to how Tesla started and where they are now. The original concept behind the Gigafactory was a campus with all the critical supplies nearby. I think ultimately that will happen. There's a huge resource in Nevada that yeah, will be exactly. developed. And I think cathode will be developed near there. And, mm. You know, I, I just think, look at how far behind we are in just, we're the most range anxiety prone crew. The, mm. the real adoption of electric vehicles in the United States is on the two coasts. There, and there's a little more happening now, but we're, you know, we're pretty far behind, but I think our, our ability to catch up is, is there also. We, we referred to the Amazons and the, and the Teslas. I think when they decide this needs to happen in the United States, it will happen quite, quite quickly. Mining's a little bit more problematic just because yeah. of permitting. But yeah, in the case of Nevada, because that's on BLM land, uh, government land, that can happen with the government's blessing in a place yes. like where i'm sitting which is where the lithium industry in the world really got its start in north carolina i mean that's that's where Avalmarl and, and fmc were both operating if you go back 30 years and they still have operations there but the mines were in two holes in the ground in north carolina yeah 
And, yeah. but to do that, it's like the oil business. You have to get all the landowners to agree and it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't happen. It doesn't necessarily happen quickly. Here's the thing, Joe, 18 months ago, if you'd asked me how much a kilowatt hour was to charge up an EV, I'd have told you around 10 or 12 P a kilowatt hour here in the UK. I might've even been able to tell you how much a gallon of petrol diesel was. I think a liter of petrol was about one pound 20 a liter something like that. But since that 18 months time, that first time I saw that chap from Benchmark, Simon, address the um, Select Energy Committee, um, I now know how much lithium hydroxide is a ton. It's about $8,800 a ton. What do you think about that then, Joe? <laughs> I've even got some of these numbers to hand. And uh, I think carbonate, uh, carbonate is um, 6,500 a ton. Well, and actually, actually. Am I wrong? You are right, but there is a range for hydroxide that goes from around 6,000 up into the teens. And there's a range for carbonate that goes from right now a little bit below four or a Cobra's average net price the last quarter was 3,900, yet... The tier one suppliers are still paying 11,000 in Japan and Korea as of June's import statistics. And, and that's, that's where we get into the nuances of this industry. You talk about all the mega factories being in China. Okay, but they only have one tier one supplier but on Simon's list. And okay, yeah. I don't know whether you call Envision Chinese or Japanese. Now, I guess they're, they're technically China. But if you look at that pyramid he does, yeah. Look at the tier one producers. It's not a Chinese dominated top trial. Yeah, no, that's, that, that's a good point. Can I ask you something then? So classically with any commodity, supply and demand dictate price. Yeah. So we now we know that we've been on this downward trajectory of battery price, you know, price per kilowatt hour uh, for many years, for at least kind of 15 years to a point where we get, depending on who you talk to, sub $100 per kilowatt hour. I think that's a pack level. Yep. Um, this is all well and good. Uh, so this is in the kind of open market, the market where we are, the kind of pretty slow take up of EV stuff. But if we get to this hockey stick, if as we're seeing now with commercial vehicles, and then we start to see others too, how might it go the other way? So those kind of figures you just mentioned, you know, for, for carbonate and for, and for hydroxide, could they double, Joe? Let's double. go back to 2015. In Q3 of 2015, Carbonate was selling for under 6,000 in China, and hydroxide was not really a big product in China at that time. It, but in, in uh, let's say, Japan and Korea, primarily Japan because of Tesla, it was 9,000 plus or minus range. Six months later, I was selling hydroxide to the industrial sector for $28,650 because the, tr the price went up 3x quickly. And the, and the reason it happened was because the, the only then operating mine in Western Australia, which was owned by an American company and a Chinese company, Albemarle and Tanchi, owned the Greenbush's mine. And they said, hey, look, we're not selling to the converters anymore. We're just selling right. to ourselves, which created a bit of a panic at the time when there was, there was a legitimate tightness, but there was also a, let's just say, oligopolistic 
the oligopoly worked for once. That's just like OPEC with the oil price. If they decide to turn the taps on, that's what they do. If they decide to turn all the taps off, that's what they do. So, then, But what happened is then you had one other mine had already been in operation and was uneconomic. That went back into operation. They got the price of spodumene to go from the threes almost to a thousand. And then you had Mount Marion open, Altura and Pilbara open. And so all of a sudden, the commodity-minded people said, okay, see, lithium's just like everything else. Price spike and demand will lead to supply, and that's that. That is probably one of the greatest fallacies in the industry that's, that's happened. But it, se- it seemed logical. The problem mm. is, is that you can't make battery with spodumene. You have to have a lithium chemical. And it's either got to be right now lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. So you have to have adequate capacity to make those chemicals. And it was very ironic that this all happened. Price went way higher than it logically should have based on any kind of cost curve. Going from 6000 to 28000 quickly is, is kind of over the top. But the price now is still higher than it was in 2015, even with what people are calling this massive oversupply. And this massive oversupply is a bit of a fool's paradise because, okay, COVID's kind of extended. 2020 is probably going to look a lot like 2019 demand-wise just because of COVID. Yeah. But if you say we've got to have, we had 300,000 tons of demand last year and we've got to have, we're going to have a million tons in 2025 or 2026, pick your, pick your year for that. How you get three X of the highest quality material, because now there's no, there's no industrial demand growth of any significance to suck up the, the bad product. And that's one of the, the dirty little secrets of the lithium industry is that, especially the brine producers, they can only make about 60% of their product that met battery specs. So the new plants have to be a lot better. So now right. you have to, you, you've create, you're creating a new industry just to reprocess and people just think, well, the market will be the answer. I mean, I think it was, it was either the top guy or the number two guy at Volkswagen was asked two or three years ago about lithium. And he said, well, it's never been a problem in the past. We don't anticipate it being a problem in the future. Well, they didn't have any demand in the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Volkswagen's a good example. So is BMW. If you look at their ambition and what they say they're going to do EV wise. Yeah. And they say, well, we have a contract with Gangfin. Well, Gangfin will only give any one company 20% of their capacity as a commitment. That is a drop in the bucket compared to what they need. Yes. So when you start doing the actual numbers, rather than have this emotional, oh, this is a commodity. Well, it's not a commodity because it's not a fungible good either. Yeah. It can't be used in everybody's batteries. (laughs) We would like to thank our sponsor, Zolandes, who prides itself on providing a new way of doing things in the lithium brine space. Recently, a junior lithium explorer in Argentina was able to save up to 20% in their exploration costs through the use of Zolandes Technology Services. To learn more, visit Zolandes.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z.com. Do you know what? And you're referencing some of those things and people there. You've reminded me. I did know a little bit about lithium before I met Simon and all that crew. I met a guy 
in the UK, and he had something to do with, I'm sure he had something to do with Gang Feng, a guy called Kirill Clip. Do you know yeah, that name? Kirill Clip, I know Kirill Clip. Yeah. Well, Kirill, there you go. Yeah, Kirill Clip is involved with a company called International Lithium, and they, they right. Gang Feng has an, an investment with them in a project that is in development in Argentina. And yes. So. Interesting guy. Interesting guy. I, I met him actually at Wentworth Golf Club. I, I think he's a bit of a keen sportsman. Um, but, but look, here's the thing. I think uh, the bigger picture sense of it all is this. What is going to trigger mass adoption of EVs? Like I said, commercial vehicles, it's going to happen. I think you've got to look at segments around the world in terms of regions and, the, and equally countries. Of course, it's got to be predicated. Surely it's got to be predicated on the gigafactory development because they're the customer, are they not? You know, initially, they've got to take the raw materials, they've got to take the supply chain to build the batteries to feed them into either the OEMs or the developers of, of renewable energy storage. So I should know this and I don't. So I'm going to ask you, if we kind of look at the global ambition, both for EVs and for solar and wind storage, which is the bigger market? Is it, is it the mobility market or is it the energy storage market? That's a great question because I was, you know, coloring way outside the lines 10 years ago when I, I said 10 years ago that by 2030, I thought EVs would grow in, in a great market. But I said, I, I actually think ultimately storage for renewables is a bigger market. And, you know, the other, whether it's, just renewables or it's managing the grid or you know any of those uses i believe will be at least parity but in my mind and it may be maybe it's 2035 i don't know but if you go around the world and look at all the places that can benefit from distributed power and then you look at the the question i have then is how what do you how do you count a vehicle to grid operation is that oh, a, right. well, is that a car yeah. or is that a is that uh energy storage but you're going to have a lot happen in the energy storage area and i think people have always kind of undersold it because it's not sexy i mean yeah no would you rather look at a in a model s or, or a, a you know a container stuffed with used batteries that's <laughs> helping manage the grid there's the rub. I think the modern world works around kind of snake oil salesmen, people that can show shiny things, people that can tell a lovely, you know, shiny, sexy story. But the fundamentals of the world and life, etc., are a lot more basic, a lot more kind of, you know, uh, they lack some luster, but they're, they're, they're the critical things that go on. So I think you're quite right. My sense of it is, and I don't have any numbers or metrics, but my sense of it as the energy storage market compared to the mobile electric market, I reckon the ratio is something like five to one, you know, in favor of energy. You know, if, if you think about it, you know, how much, how many other things, heating, air conditioning, you know, where well, heating, air conditioning, I suppose, HVAC, you, you, you'd yeah. call it, and, and, you know, devices, cooking, so many things are reliant now, lighting, on electricity, if we really want to shift ourselves to this sustainable world of solar and wind energy primarily, then we're going to need a ton of stationary storage. You know, not just batteries, of course. I do think this is where many other technologies tools will be used. Of course, yeah, of course, of course they will. Um, and things we've yet to even think about. I think, 
you know, I'm a great believer in trying to imagine crazy stuff, probably because I'm getting old and, and I start to panic as I get older about <laughs> just what's going to happen to me. 61, man. You're 61. Okay, that makes more sense. But no, I'm 63. Oh, there you go. I knew we were pretty similar. But well, I, just, I thought so until I thought, damn, Roger's a young man. He's 55. No, 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 no. It's not that. But, but a very quick tangent, but forgive me. I was reading out the other day and watching some video stuff on uh, one of other um, Mr. Musk's uh, uh, other thing, Neuralink. Have you heard yeah. of Neuralink? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I oh, heard him on talking oh. about that on uh, Joe Rogan and, and some other place. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I, I kind of think if you imagine that the human brain in and of itself is of some good ones and not so good ones, um, but if we have the capacity with a little bit of help, i.e. having a chip inserted in our head, to fire off our neural networks so much more to create and stimulate greater imagination and develop almost unfathomable currently technologies and, and solutions to things. Who knows where some of this stuff will go? And, and I just, I, I, you know, I suppose I like that kind of thinking as I've always liked science fiction. But, but what we're seeing now, I think, emerge more and more, is science fiction turning into science fact. The International Space Station... 20 years ago, let alone 30, 40 or 50, would have just been, you'd have been on drugs if you're talking about that. But there it is. It's a fully functioning, incredible thing. We're going to be on the moon within the next decade. We're going to have a moon base. There's no doubt about that. I, can I quickly tell you what one, I don't want to go off on yet another tangent, but wireless charging, I think, is potentially a bit of an antidote to ever more and ever bigger batteries. And I happen to be on the advisory board of an American company called Momentum Dynamics, who are now equipping Jaguar I-Paces with high-power wireless charging up to 50, 60 kilowatts on a car. You can get many more on package space on buses, et cetera. And that means that you don't just have to carry the energy on board on a battery. You go to the first principle of an EV, which is it runs on an electron, not on a battery. Battery is just the storage medium. Yeah. And the reason why I mentioned that, partly because I'm on the advisory board, so it's my job to mention these things, <laughs> um, is also that Andy Darga, the founder, uh, co-founder with his friend Bruce, is ex-NASA. And Andy, when he was at NASA, was scoping and developing, even though it was, this was years ago, moon bases in lava tubes under the surface of, of the moon and on Mars. So, you know, some of this stuff that sounds crazy and like, science fiction people have been all over it for quite some time and america can get slated for all sorts these days and and um, yeah, you're an american of course but but actually when i certainly might someone my age you look at what nasa the vision of nasa and from kennedy in the early 60s right the way through anything's possible the beauty of imagination and all that nasa did not just the lunar program was pretty cool but look at all the subsequent things, including that relationship with the Russian space program. The extraordinary things are possible. We just have to imagine it and collect our minds together and get on with it. So in some senses, this journey of how do we make lithium industry work well? How do we get more EVs? When's it ever going to happen? It will. It's going to. Well, it, will, mean, it will happen. It will happen when somebody like Bezos realizes He's got to put some money into it. Or you have, I've always said that the oil company's technology can be brought to bear, especially on the brine side. It's a, it's a natural thing. It's just lithium, 
as an industry was so small. The whole lithium chemicals industry didn't reach a billion dollars until 2015. That's just crazy. So people say, well, why doesn't Exxon care? I said, because it's like they spill more oil in a year than the whole value of the, the lithium industry. If you look at yourself as I'm an energy company, and, and I've had some discussions with some of the big oil guys now, and, and there, there is interest. It's just taken way too long, in my opinion. But somebody will do it. Somebody will say, okay, what do we have to do to make sure that this is not a limiting factor? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. I know we're talking lithium. That's, that's your absolute speciality, but, but... Or anything else. I mean, this yeah. is... Look at nickel, look at, manganese, that yes, cobalt, of course. It's unfortunate I'm a one-trick pony, but uh, it, I've, it, you know, lithium's done okay by me. But I do, I do find the whole situation fascinating now. With it makes more sense to me. Tesla now, rather than how I thought about it ten years ago, is starting with a clean sheet of paper was a better way than try to take a internal combustion engine company and turn it into an EV company. Absolutely. And, and like I say, if you look at the breadth of what he is involved in as an influencer, influencer by way of his companies and the people around him, the talent around him, whether it's SpaceX, whether it's Tesla, you know, whether it's Neuralink, he, he is a modern day Carnegie. He, he's a modern day Edison. There's no doubt about it. On that point, by the way, it just reminded me, not that he, well, he hasn't responded, but <clears throat> I didn't expect him to. Bill Ford um, put a post up the other day talking about some development in Detroit, which has sounded really interesting and, and exciting, and, and I, I wish him well. But I, I dropped a little comment on it saying, I think it would be lovely if you hooked up, actually hooked up commercially with, with Elon Musk. The guys Elon Musk holds in huge regard is Henry Ford. He yeah. absolutely does. That, that's on record. And I think what would be really good to trigger an acceleration of electrification for people is for, is for people to, to reach out to Tesla, which would sound a bit counterintuitive because surely they're the evil empire, surely they're the pain in the arse, surely they're the competition. But actually, I think they could be something much better and, and more than that. And I can't think of almost any other company better to do that and individual to do that than Bill Ford. Um, what do you think of that? Do you, do you think that could ever happen? Bill Ford and Elon Musk kind of getting it together? I, I, you know, I, I don't know, Bill Ford. I, I heard the story uh, told on your, uh, your interview with uh, the, the book you showed. You, talk, you talked about Bill Ford on that. Uh, oh, yes, 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 he does. Yeah, in, in yeah. Green Swans. Yeah. yeah. And, no, I actually think Musk is much more willing to go across platforms or across the aisle or however you want to view that than a lot of other people would be. And I think he's proven that. And I just, I mean, what he's done with Tesla has been great, but I find what he's done with SpaceX much more yeah. amazing in terms of talk about an invented here <laughs> syndrome. I mean, NASA's done a lot of great things, but they're not known as, um, most flexible people on the planet either. No, no, but by the same token, I think that relationship between, because it is relationship, not competition, between SpaceX and NASA is an illustration of how his kind of mindset is the, the people that have come before 
you know, you kind of stand on the shoulder of giants. And, and uh, you know, wh whether he thinks of Bill Ford as that giant or, or Henry Ford, he definitely sees Henry Ford and, and what he triggered in terms of the, the modern automotive industry as, as being huge in, inspiration to what he's achieved. And I think we're getting closer to that time where the traditional industry knows that it, it's either make or break. And we will if, you know, I think quite soon, I would say within the next five years, see one or more major OEMs fail. Yeah, because no, I, I believe that. In the industry, have a, they're just not have doing a it. of the herd because it's a model that it doesn't work that well. And now you've got, it's a better technology in many respects. And it's, uh, here's a guy, I, uh, you know, I'm driving a nine-year-old Lexus just because I don't drive much anymore. And, but I put it charging set up for a Tesla and, and my next car will be a Tesla. Yeah. But I'm getting rid of my Lexus more because the whole electronics, it's, it's nine years old. It's like three yeah. generations. I just want better technology. I don't want a better ride. Yeah. Well, you know, it might not even be a better ride. But, but, but the thing is, um, <clears throat> I, I think... Um, I drank two glasses of wine, Joe, so I'm probably not as, as, as tight now as you are. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, it's always five o'clock somewhere. It's not quite five o'clock here, but um, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I've really enjoyed this. And this is definitely going to be one of my most all over the block podcasts, which I think is great. I mean, there's an audience for two guys just talking about these topics and you're very knowledgeable. I mean, I just, my objective here wasn't to say, Roger Atkins, what's EV penetration going to be in 2025? <laughs> it's more, yeah. this is more thought provoking about where are the points of light? Where is this happening? You talk to a lot of people, you understand it. It is happening. And yes. un unfortunately, there's just a lot of people, especially in the US, we're very myopic about a lot of these things. But I also know that once the tipping point happens, we respond pretty quickly too. Yes, yes. Oh, Joe, by the way, I've just remembered what it was, was on my mind. It was in this relation, potential relationship between uh, uh, Bill Ford, Ford and, and Elon. Elon Musk, yeah. Well, back in the day, so when Henry Ford put things together, one of the key things he did was the, the, the business was ver vertically integrated in terms of supply chain. So for example, yeah. he, had, um, he, ha he owned rubber plantations for the obvious reason. You know, he wanted direct access, unfettered access to that particular commodity. But over time, the auto industry kind of pushed out um, that supply chain into tier ones, tier twos, and a whole host of other people made it very big, very complex, and made it very global. And that kind of really showed itself up during the last three or four months. So in the context of many of the people listening to this podcast, I think we are hurtling towards a moment where we revisit history and that automakers of electric vehicles vertically integrate their operation to own some of these crucial components within the supply chain, which of course, fundamentally, but not only includes the battery. And I'm pretty certain if you put Bill Ford and Elon Musk together and they talked about a few things, they both end up sort of scratching their heads and looking at where things are going saying do you not think we ought to owe a few mines you know for the relative cost of those mines when we can take a punt on some other technology with a billion dollars that ends up being kind of chucked in the bin you know in three years time wouldn't we be far better 
vertically integrating more of the business into some of this fundamental supply chain arena. I could, you you may not having that conversation. You may not be aware, but Elon tried to buy a lithium operation based on geothermal technology in Southern California in 2014. I was involved. I picked JB Straubel up at the little airstrip operation in the Salton Sea. Why didn't he made an offer? The offers actually, you can Google it. And I think Desert Morning Sun, Sun printed his offer letter to John Burba. $325 million. And what happened was this was a, a startup and it was called Symbol Materials. Right. And then the VCs who controlled it brought in some people, some, some Wall Street guys, and they did some calculating because I was in the room for two days while they did it, while I told them they were making a huge mistake. And they counteroffered Elon's 325 with 1.6 billion. And I said, if you go back to Elon Musk with that offer, it will be a very short meeting. And it was a very short meeting. <laughs> and at that point in time in 2014, he wasn't as well situated as he is now financially. So it doesn't shock me that there's an interest on the part of Tesla to vertically integrate. Because Elon was thinking about it even back then, because he, he was just trying to drive the cost down of his raw materials. Yeah, it's, that's all you can, you can uh, Google that. And uh, so certainly that was six years ago. Yeah, well, it's interesting to look at where J.B. Struble is now, of course. So um, uh, I think uh, that's a very interesting story. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of connecting a few dots up in my head as I think. Yeah, very well, interesting. It didn't happen. And Elon was very angry about the counteroffer. And then the, a, a couple of months later, Tesla went out and signed agreements with two quote unquote lithium companies that had like a snowball's chance in hell of producing. And then it became kind of a, well, what, what is their real intention now? They, they got into the gigafactory, which was real money. Interestingly now at the other end of supply chain, i.e. he's in the recycling side of things. Cause you know, that's, we didn't talk about that and let's not go off on that. That's my next podcast. Actually, I'm talking to Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Reed is the urban miner or going to become the urban miner. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a definitely an interesting arena. And And it's, I didn't get into that because it's, to me, it's really to be viable for lithium supplies, probably almost 10 years away because you need, you need enough cars to have been on the road and been sure. Yes. Second life and be at the point where they need to be recycled and, and lithium's the least valuable material. So you could have a cobalt nickel and lithium might not make the cut depending on how much it costs to get the last bit out and what the price of lithium at the time was. Yes. I talked to Tesla's cathode maker, Sumitomo Metal Mining, two years ago. At the time they, they were talking, it, lithium would have to be selling for at least, you know, it had to be worth at least nine bucks a kilo which, which it, it will be on a sustained basis uh, to make it worthwhile based on what they viewed as the technology at the time. Yes. Well, you know, look, we could talk about a whole bunch of other things. There's some amazing com- companies which Simon and his team have introduced me to as I've hosted a few of these things around the place. And um, if there's one thing for sure, I think that the auto industry, particularly the dudes in the supply chain arena, could do with listening to your kind of talking and what Simon does with, with, with the team just to gen themselves up on this stuff because the notion of gradually then suddenly 
well, yeah, for sure. This is, this is what's going to happen with, with the I love EVs. that. I love that expression. It's, it's another way of saying an, an overnight success after 20 years. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm getting kind of sick of saying that, so I'm just going to plagiarize your... Uh... Feel free. I will undoubtedly have plagiarized it myself from somewhere, so it's just like a, a relay race. You're just taking a baton out of my hand. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm running the third lap. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have another one of these sessions because this was fun. Yeah. I mean, assuming you're willing. But yeah, of course, Joe. at the end of a podcast, I always like to ask a few questions. Listen, it, it truly is, I'm, I feel a real, you know, privilege to, I know you're hugely respected in the industry and, and I'm a kind of a complete newbie to it. So being kind of welcomed in into your world like this, um, I, I do it anytime, my friend. So, you know, you know, please, please feel free. And uh, I'd love to share this with um, uh, the people on, on LinkedIn that, um, that I knock around with as well, for sure. Sure. I, it'll take me a while to edit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, usually, I usually don't go 90 minutes, but hey, let me, let me ask you a couple of questions. Yeah, go on. First one, if you could, knowing what you know today, make a phone call to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give 20-year-old Roger Atkins based on what the 61-year-old Roger Atkins knows? Be inquisitive, be bold, be brave, and take risks, even really big ones, because even when you fail, um, as long as you don't die, you'll, you'll gain something. Great answer. All right. If you could have dinner with anyone who's ever lived, they're dead, we'll bring them back for you. Who would you want to have dinner with? Well, um, it's going to be a bit cliched given what I do and my kind of world, but I think it would be Nikola Tesla just because I kind of think he's just an interesting human being, you know, apart from being incredibly clever and coming from a very poor background. I, I like people that, that come from nothing. So I think it would have been Nikola Tesla. Definitely. And he kind of got a bad shake in the end too. I mean, he, yeah, you know, ends up dying on his own in a hotel and like, you know, what a crazy journey. And, and this guy is still influencing everybody's life on the planet today. And most yeah. people have never heard of him. The interesting, I, I had not, you know, I didn't know the story. I read the book a few years ago. But. There's, there's a great film, by the way. I say great film. I've seen better ones, but it's a great film in the context of talking about uh, Nikola Tesla. Um, it, you, can, you can get it actually just, I think it's on uh, YouTube somewhere. I don't think it's an illegal thing, download, but, but you, you, you can watch it. And Orson Welles plays J.P. Morgan, the banker. So, oh. I mean, it's a pretty good film. If you've got Orson Welles in your film, yep. you know, you, you had something right. Yeah, well, I would recommend anyone to watch that because you get the gist of who the heck was Elon Musk and why was he so important. All right. Well, Roger, two glasses of wine later. Thank you very much for uh, yes, Joe. being on the podcast. And uh, I hope to do this again relatively soon and ra much rather it be in person but who knows when uh who knows when that's going to happen well you know let, let's let's hope sooner rather than later simple as that all right sir thanks a lot yeah. you know, thanks a lot joe talk again soon thank you yeah cheers thanks again for listening to the podcast 
If you want more from Roger Atkins, he is one of the most fouled EV people on LinkedIn with over 400,000 followers. And he can also be found at his website, electricvehiclesoutlook.com. I can be found on LinkedIn under Joe Lowry or Global Lithium LLC. I can also be found on Twitter and Instagram at Global Lithium, although my Instagram account is mostly just personal pictures. The podcast, in addition to all the normal podcast sites, is now available on my website, globallithium.net. And with that, I'll leave you with the thought, don't let your memories exceed your dreams. Good night and good luck.